turn to 1 Corinthians 15. See that you're hearing me all right. They were replacing the battery of the microphone, not my battery. Um, I sometimes wish they could do something as simple as that, but uh, I'm glad you're able to hear. And it's lovely to be here. It's always a great privilege, and I'm so grateful to the pastor and elders inviting me back um, to be with you. 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 1 to 11, it will help very much if you have that open before you. And you'll notice that the passage begins like this, Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. The word gospel is particularly associated with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the message of Christianity. The essential message of the Lord Jesus is good news. That's why the records of his life, four of them in the New Testament, are called Gospels. And the whole of the New Testament in particular, although it's in the Old Testament as well, but the whole of the New Testament explains the Gospel. But the truth is, the word Gospel has been hijacked over the years um, and used in a variety of ways. Um, If you regard something as Gospel, or as gospel truth, you believe strongly that it's true. You say something to someone and they say that's gospel truth. Now that's not inappropriate uh, because the Christian message is truth. Gospel is applied to a style of religious music involving strong rhythms and people singing in harmony. And that's not unfitting because I've never met a Christian who hasn't had something to sing about and to praise God for. But if you say that someone is a gospel singer, that doesn't mean today that he or she is a Christian. Gospel is also used of a set of ideas that someone holds strongly. We say that's the gospel by which he or she lives. There's the gospel of self-reliance, which we hear quite a bit about. This prompts an individual to say, I don't believe in God, or even if he exists. I can live my life without him. The gospel of self-sufficiency. There's the gospel of syncretism. Syncretism is where you put various faiths together and pick and choose. We find that in the New Age movement, which is everywhere. It brings together the various elements of Christian theism, humanistic naturalism, pantheism, where you believe in lots of gods, and animism, where you believe in spirits. And what it does is it takes the easy and the attractive and the comfortable features of each and discards those elements that are discomforting, demanding. It produces the ideal consumer religion. You will have heard a lot in recent days about the Baha'i faith, which is a gospel of syncretism. At its heart is the belief that A single people with a common destiny is what humanity is all about. It teaches that there's one God who progressively reveals himself to mankind, humankind in different ways. So it takes each of the great religions, calls the messengers of God, Moses, Krishna, Buddha, Zoroaster, Jesus and Muhammad, and says that these are different ways, progressive ways, in which God is revealed. They believe that Bahá'u'lláh, the most recent messenger in this line, has brought teachings that address 
the moral and spiritual challenges of the contemporary world. And because of the Hutton Inquiry and the sad death of Dr. David Kelly, a lot has been heard about the Baha'i faith. So that Barney Leach gave evidence before that inquiry about that faith. But so it goes on. Only yesterday, in reading, this is in the Times Supplement, it talked about something new. Its heading is, the latest celebrities must have God. Celebrities have it all, but a miserable find Carabella is the answer. I'd never heard of Carabella before, my ignorance. But this is what it says about it. The point of Carabella is that you don't need an intermediary, in other words, you don't need a mediator, Jesus. Everyone can have a direct relationship with God, well that's true, with a mediator. The idea seems to fit well with celebrities. Madonna may be the most vocal devotee, but Demi Moore, Courtney Love, Barbara Streisand, Dinah Keaton, Goldie Horn, and Elizabeth Taylor have all signed on to practice Kabbalah, a set of ancient Jewish teachings that prescribe rules for living an emotionally satisfying life. The promise is, follow the rules, wear a red string around your left wrist to ward off the evil eye, and happiness is yours. Celebrities espousing what to them is a gospel. It will keep on happening. But there is only one gospel. There is only one gospel. Why? Why is there only one gospel? Because God has only given one. And he chooses only to give one. And God's Son, the mediator, whom we spoke of this morning, is the only one God has given by whom we may come to God and find reconciliation, forgiveness and salvation. His Son offered for all time one sacrifice for sins that means for all time all who believe in him may find forgiveness and a right relationship with God. Now that's why this passage is important because it talks about the gospel. In verses 1 and 2 you find the word gospel and what it is saying as it goes on in the rest of the chapter is that essential to the gospel of the good news which found no place here everything that was said here was about this present life. That's very significant. But what the Gospel says is that essential to the Gospel is the resurrection of the dead. And that's why this subject of the Gospel is introduced by Paul. We need to remember as we read this letter that Paul is responding first to what he heard from others about what the Corinthians were saying and secondly, what they've written to him about asking questions. And so these first 11 verses lead up to Paul dealing with the subject of the resurrection of the dead. Verse 12 is the key. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If what they said was true, I would be the most miserable man here tonight. 
What a devastating thing for some of those Corinthians to say and how tragic that obviously some listen to them and adopt to the same view. It's perhaps worth noticing that this church, with all its emphasis upon prophecy, speaking in tongues, that those gifts that they claimed did not guarantee that they had right understanding of the great fundamentals of the faith. And what they needed was solid teaching. For nothing can replace the solid teaching of the Word of God. So what does Paul do? He goes back to basics. And we should emulate Paul in his approach. Whenever we have difficult questions, we need to go back to basics, retrace our steps to the fundamentals of the faith. Speaking in tongues, prophecy, are not fundamentals of the faith. What Paul now talks about are the fundamentals. And it's essential, therefore, that all Christians, including the youngest, should know the basics of Christian belief. I'm so glad to see so many young people here on a Sunday. It's great encouragement. Do you know the most important thing for you is to know the Lord Jesus and to know the fundamentals of the faith. We lack spiritual backbone if we neglect the Christian creed. As a church, we have our own doctrinal basis. There's a place for going through it and understanding it. Our forebears used catechisms and they were the stronger for it. But as important as knowing what we believe is, as I suggested, the one in whom we believe. I know whom I have believed, Paul said, but he knew what he believed. We're always to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. Now that's a quote from the New Testament. What is that hope? I would say that if you interpret that hope, that hope is the resurrection of the dead. So let's see what Paul does as he goes back to the basics. He reminds the Corinthians of four things. Four things. First, he reminds them of the gospel, the gospel that he preached to them. Now, brothers, verse 1, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. We're not told in the New Testament how long Paul stayed in the majority of places. But we know that he stayed longer in Corinth, I think probably the longest time he stayed anywhere. Following his usual practice, going into a city that had never had the gospel preached to it before, being a Jew, he went first to the Jewish synagogue. He had a responsibility to his own people, as you and I have to our own families, our own relatives, our friends. Many believed, but opposition broke out with tremendous force, and Paul wondered whether he should stay. And one night, the Lord Jesus spoke to him in a vision. He said to him, Don't be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking. People have to hear. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack you and harm you. I have many people in this city. In other words, there are people here who are going to believe the word as you preach it. And so for 18 months, a long time for Paul, a year and a half, he stayed in Corinth. 
And the church in Corinth came into being as he shared the good news. And as he wrote this letter, just as I can think of the chapel, whenever I think of the chapel, I don't think of a building, I think of people. I think of faces that I know. And when Paul wrote to Corinth, he could think of the people to whom he had, with whom he had shared the gospel. He had personally preached it to them. All right, then, what is the gospel? Well, in verses 3 to 8, he lists five essential parts. First, he says, Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died. Now, that's important in our day and age too. Paul was preaching to Gentiles as well as to Jews. Christ, Jesus' Messiahship, was the starting point of his preaching because the whole career of Jesus Christ was Messiah work. It was work that God had promised centuries before. And you cannot understand the good news of the Lord Jesus until you understand who he is. He is God's chosen one. He is the anointed one, the one whom God has specially chosen to be the saviour of men and women. Secondly, Jesus the Christ was buried, died for our sins and was buried, verses 3 and 4. The heart of the gospel is the cross of the Lord Jesus. Now, I can imagine some people who come to a church like this and I can still remember going to a church not being a Christian. But you may wonder why on earth do Christians keep on talking about the cross? Well, because the Bible does so. As here. If you turn to any of the four Gospels, they all give more space to the cross than anything else. Well, that tells you how important it is. And as Paul says here, Christ died for our sins. That's such a simple statement. But it's talking about the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus in the place of sinners. Substitution means Jesus in our place. Here am I, a sinful man, more sinful than I realize, deserving the anger of God and the justice of God and the punishment of God and separation from God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who had no sin, had never displeased God, his Father, stood in my place as my substitute, bearing God's anger and judgment, death against my sin. Christ died for our sins. That's what I told you, Paul said. Thirdly, Jesus the Christ was raised on the third day, the great proof of his divinity. Verse 4, he was buried, he was raised. Paul had met him on the Damascus road the risen Lord. And fourth, both Jesus' death and resurrection were predicted and promised in the Old Testament. Look at verses 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You just imagine Paul, a Jew, who knew the Old Testament. Suddenly reading Isaiah 53, with new eyes, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. Paul had done that. And the Lord has laid on him, who? The Messiah, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. 
Or imagine him reading a psalm he would often have heard and read. Psalm 16, where David, speaking of himself, but speaking prophetically of the Messiah, says, My body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And the whole of the Old Testament became alive. It became full of the Lord Jesus as Paul understood what the Old Testament was about. And as he preached the good news to Jews and Gentiles, he preached it according to this word. And fifth, Jesus is the living Lord who was seen after his resurrection by many witnesses and he still makes himself known. Verse 5, he appeared to Peter. What a lot that meeting meant to Peter. Peter had failed Jesus and Peter picks him up again as it were, puts him on his feet. He appeared to the twelve and we have the record of the appearances of Jesus to the apostles. Verse 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. We have no other record of that in the New Testament. So it's very significant. Some of that 500, Paul says, were alive when he wrote. You could have met them. We were there. There were 500 or more of us. I love the fact that in verse 6, he uses the attractive description of sleep for those who have died trusting in the Lord Jesus. Isn't that lovely? I'm not afraid of sleep and I don't have to be afraid of those who trust in the Lord Jesus who have died. They are asleep in their bodies, their spirits alive. And then the Lord appeared, verse 7, to James. Can't be dogmatic as to which James, but it seems probably that it was James the Lord's brother. You may remember how the brothers of Jesus didn't really understand or trust in him during his ministry. But it was an appearance that led to his conversion. And last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Isn't that interesting? That becoming a Christian is new birth again. And just as in normal birth as it takes place, there may sometimes be an abnormal birth. Paul's was abnormal. The Lord Jesus arresting him, shining into his heart. Now Paul is saying these resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus are an essential part of preaching the gospel. We don't simply proclaim a saviour who died, but a saviour who having died, rose again. We preach Christ crucified. And that word crucified means that he's not still crucified, but having been crucified, he's alive. Now these five truths are the basics of the gospel. They're the basic basis of the gospel. The gospel has never been properly proclaimed if those five truths have not been proclaimed. But Paul also tells us of the manner in which he preached this gospel. Look at verse 3. For what I received, and he received it from the Lord Jesus, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. 
So these five truths that he's passed on to us were truths that the Lord Jesus in that encounter on the Damascus Road and subsequently the Lord Jesus conveyed to him. So that when Paul preached, if you can imagine him preaching in the chapel here this evening, he preached as a steward. He preached as someone who had received something and he must deliver it carefully. It brought to my mind something that happened when Betty and I were here at the chapel living in the mountains in Midmar Garden. One day, a, a large van arrived and a man rang the doorbell. I think it was a Jenner's van, I'm not sure. And uh, not just one parcel, but one parcel and several little parcels were delivered to us. We had no idea what was in the parcels and there was no indication. What I do remember was that the van driver very deliberately got out the schedule of what he had to deliver and he demanded that I accurately and carefully marked off my acceptance of everything he delivered. Actually what it was, because you'll be wondering what it was. <laughs> um, and we think that it was probably from someone who had returned to the Far East, but what it was was a food mixture with various gadgets. And uh, we, we never know, can't be sure who it was, but we imagine that was the person. But you see, that van driver wasn't concerned about what we thought about it. What he was concerned about was that we acknowledged that we'd received it. And so he carefully delivered it that we might equally carefully receive it. And Paul says, as I preach the gospel, I carefully delivered it that you might truly receive it. And he preached it according to the scriptures. When Paul preached, he knew exactly what he had to pass on. I don't want to be over solemn, but I want to remind you that we would not be here today in this particular building or Christians anywhere in Scotland and the world too, if there had not been those who received the gospel and were determined to pass it on, no matter what cost. I brought out a book. It's very old. You can see it's falling to bits. It was written by the first pastor of Charlotte Chapel. And the chapel is nearly 200 years old in its being a church fellowship. And it describes in this book, it's called The History of the English Bible, but I came just this week, Friday I think it was, um, to the account of someone who probably, and I haven't been able to prove it, I don't think anyone can, finally, the record of the first Scottish martyr for the gospel. His name was Patrick Hamilton. He was born in 1504. Let me tell you what he believed. He was charged to say what he believed as a Christian. Now the language is a little ancient, but this is what he said he believed. That the corruption of sin remains in children after their baptism. In other words, baptism doesn't take away anyone's sins, certainly not infant baptism. That no man by the power of his free will can do any good. None of us can live perfect lives that no man is without sin as long as he liveth. 
we remain sinners. That every Christian may know himself to be in a state of grace. God forgives your sins. That a man is not justified by works, but by faith only. Now that was what he believed. On the 28th of February, 1528, when he was but 23, not much older than some of you here, or perhaps the same age, he was burned at the stake outside St. Salvatius College in St. Andrews. His accusers said to him, you're a heretic. How do you say it's lawful to any man to read the word of God, and in particular the New Testament? Hamilton, I said and say it now, it is lawful to all men that have a soul to read the word of God, that that they may understand the same, and especially the gospel of Jesus Christ, whereby they may acknowledge their sins and repent of the same, whereby they may amend their lives by faith and repentance, and attain salvation by Christ Jesus. So they put him to the stake and they burnt him. They made a mess of it. They didn't have sufficient fuel and having partially burned him, they had to get more kindling. And as he died, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And I have the gospel in Scotland and you have the gospel in Scotland because of men like Patrick Hamilton. We sang, who is on the Lord's side? What of you and me? Is that what the gospel means? Would you die for it? Would you give your life for it? Would you become a missionary or a pastor for the sake of the gospel? Patrick Hamilton gave his life at the age of 23. So just as you and I have benefited from those in the past, we are to pass that gospel on. Paul said to Timothy in his second letter, Timothy, the things that I've entrusted to you, I want you to entrust to faithful men who will teach others. Now, having said that, Paul reminds the Corinthians again, and I make no apology for doing it, that there is only one gospel, the apostolic gospel. As we said earlier, there may be many other Gospels. The fact that people like Madonna and all these other folk may espouse this or that, what significance does that have? What is important is what is true. And the apostolic Gospel is the Gospel that Jesus Christ himself gave to them. For three years, the Lord Jesus taught those apostles and then gave them his Spirit. And the apostles carefully passed on what the Lord Jesus had committed to them. And I want to say to you all, I say it to every young person here, thank God if you know and love the Lord Jesus. I say it to those of us who are older, the gospel is a deposit. It is a precious treasure. In fact, I would imagine, check me out if I'm wrong, but that in the parable of the talent, that Jesus told, it represents the gospel. You remember there was one man who was given five talents and he went and traded and he got five talents more. Another man was given two talents and he put his to work and gained two more. 
But there was a man who received one talent who went off and he dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. The master came back and the man who had received five talents received five more. Or rather, who had received five and had ten, he received more and received his master's commendation. The man with the two talents said, I've gained two more. And he was given more. And the man who had only one talent and had hid it, hadn't put it to work, was called you wicked servant. Take his talent from him, give it to the one who has ten talents. Everyone who has will be given more, but he who has not will be lose even what he has. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Had that man who had received the one talent ever understood the gospel? Can you really receive the gospel and not want to put it to work that others may share in the good news of the Lord Jesus? The gospel is a great treasure. It's not a treasure that we deposit in the bank or in a police station, or in a place of security. The gospel is something to be put out, to be shared unashamedly. Paul has to acknowledge that it amazes him that he's able to do it. He says in verses 9 to 11, he did not deserve to be an apostle. He doesn't say that he in fact achieved more than others, He says that he knew he had to work harder because he owed more to God's grace than others. And Paul says, whatever or whoever preaches the gospel to you, it's the same gospel because there's only one gospel. It's the apostolic gospel. There is salvation in no one else save the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone needs the gospel. Now, you may think I've left out verses 1 and 2. I've left them out to last since they really lead into verse 12. And so, finally, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the proper response to the gospel. Let me read it with you. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. That's why the subject for this evening is called By This You Stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Now let's just follow it through briefly. The gospel has to be preached. No one ever believes unless they hear the gospel or read the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And for someone to enter into salvation... They have to have the good news preached to them. It's been put very simply that faith means assent to the good news as divine truth and consent to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you not only hear, you not only believe what you hear, but there comes a moment when you deliberately consent 
to receive Jesus Christ into your life. So Paul says, first of all, the gospel must be received. All right, you have to receive the gospel, which is receiving the Lord Jesus. Secondly, a stand must be taken upon it. A deliberate stand. That stand is often the stand of baptism. A deliberate stand. People know where you stand. Jesus is Lord and he is my Lord. And then it must be held on to firmly. You see, it's sadly possible to profess to believe, but to believe in vain. To say that you receive the gospel, but not really to receive the Lord Jesus, and not to take your stand with him. The test of faith's reality is its continuance. It's not enough just to say you believe the truth, but you must receive the Saviour of whom the truth speaks. And Paul's reasoning is clear. If we're not sure of the basic truths of the gospel, we will not be sure of the resurrection of the dead. And if we're not sure of the resurrection of the dead, we've not understood the fundamental significance of Jesus' resurrection. He died for my sins. Oh, thank God for that. But he rose again that I might one day rise from the dead and know the wonders of resurrection life with all God's redeemed people. Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Are you sure that one day you will rise and be joined with the Lord Jesus and enter into the glories of that eternal inheritance God has promised to those who believe in his Son? That's essential to being a Christian. It's what God the Holy Spirit makes you to understand and to believe. And that's where Paul's argument will be leading him in the verses that follow. So we must end. What do we say to ourselves tonight? Know the gospel. Oh, know it. Know it so that you can deliver it. Understand the gospel. You young people, I would ask you to know the gospel, to know the Bible, to know God's truth, as well as you know any subject that you're studying. You'll never have more time than you have now. You won't believe me now. I didn't when I was told it, when I was a student, but it was right. You've more time, more ability to discipline your time, to use your time, use it well, to know and understand the gospel. And receive the gospel. Receive the Lord Jesus. Take your stand on it. Publicly declare in the way the Lord Jesus laid down that you are his and unashamedly declare your faith in him and then tell the gospel. Tell it carefully. Don't be like the man who hid his talent in the ground and who when the master came he had nothing to show And if I understand it aright, he had never really understood the gospel. Oh, it looked as if he did, because he had a talent. He had the gospel in some form. But it had been unfruitful. And have supreme confidence in the gospel. 
Paul, how I would love to share with these people named here the good news of the Lord Jesus. Do you know the sad thing, and I don't want to make much of it, but the point it makes here is that people are having to pay lots of money, lots of money, to get the benefit of this new gospel so-called. I offer you the Lord Jesus Christ without money, without price to you. The price has been paid and he's the saviour we proclaim. How wonderful if as we went from this place we were saying to one another, go forth and tell. You'll never probably, and I hope you won't, have to suffer like Patrick Hamilton at the age of 23. But oh to God that we all had the confidence of Patrick Hamilton and have the same reward as he has had. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's sing together.